0: Hello and welcome to another podcast-exclusive episode of T-Rex Talk. My name is Isaac Botkin, and uh, we've been a little bit busy recently. That's why you may have missed out on uh, one uh, or so of these podcast episodes. I'm assuming it's only one, but I can't say for sure, so I'll just hedge my bets. One or more. You've missed out on one or more podcast exclusives because we're busy doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, I can't comment on any of it, of course, but I, I can... I'll merely say that some changes cannot be made quietly. Our IWB holsters are temporarily unavailable for purchase while we finish the last major steps in retooling our production line. Now today I want to talk about a a news article that I read last week. It's kind of interesting on a couple of levels. Uh, As usual, gun control activists are recommending different types of gun control, and uh, people like me are thinking that these are dumb ideas because they're demonstrably dumb ideas. But I want to talk about one person in particular named Michael Cogbill. He's not a legislator. He is just a writer. He's a gun control activist who works for a couple of groups and he wrote an op-ed in Pennsylvania. And uh, his idea for stopping gun crime is um, a 20-year ban on all production and importation of guns. No confiscations, just a temporary ban on sales because we have, quote, too many guns, unquote. So, Let's kind of break this down. In the first place, I actually do want to say kudos to Michael Cogbill for having what is kind of a fresh idea in some ways. I mean, if it is in fact true that there are too many guns, then just turning off the tap for a few years is kind of an interesting idea. It doesn't confiscate stuff. Uh, it doesn't eliminate certain types of things from production or from from use. It's just stopping production for a while so that supply and demand can kind. Of, wait a minute. No, that's not how that works. Uh, supply uh, and demand uh, work together. A temporary ban on production and importations and everybody else gets to keep everything that they have actually seems fairly open-handed and somewhat open-minded. But it is actually a terrible idea for a whole bunch of moral, legal, constitutional, and practical reasons. And I am going to talk today specifically about some practical reasons there. Now, for the record, I believe that when you are having an argument like this, you should never uh, start with the practical reasons first. You should always go into the moral and the legal arguments to begin with. The practical reasons are always secondary to the principal reasons. But if you are listening to this podcast, you probably already know the moral arguments for the right of self-defense. And you probably already know the legal arguments behind the Second Amendment. Now, David Chipman. Uh, does not know about the second amendment he had a comment earlier which i should have written down so i could read it verbatim but he basically said there is no right to buy a gun simply because you are not a criminal well actually yeah there is there's there's actually kind of a whole amendment uh, that says that the rights of the people shall not be uh, infringed by the government so no there is actually a thing so i believe that you should make these moral and legal arguments first and then bring up the practical ones as well. But since you know those arguments, I want to talk about some of the fallout that would probably come from a 20-year ban on all production and importation of guns. What would actually happen if we did that? Well, the first thing that would happen is... The cost of guns would go way up, but at the same time, we would kill a whole bunch of gun companies because supply is driven by demand. And when you have rising demand and you have made it impossible to meet the supply, a lot of weird stuff is gonna happen. Guns are gonna be really valuable, almost as valuable as pre-ban machine guns are, almost as valuable as banned guns in California are. Guns that are not on the roster in California are worth significantly more than those exact same guns across the border in Nevada. So uh, it's actually Actually, not real clear in Michael Cogwell's original article whether he's talking about a 20 year ban in all of the United States or just in Pennsylvania. But obviously, banning guns just in Pennsylvania doesn't work because Pennsylvania has neighbors and the neighbors are going to be pretty well armed. But let's say it's the whole country, and so a whole bunch of American companies are basically done at this point. Not, not all gun companies. Some would be able to pivot. There are some gun companies, like SIG USA, that have their fingers in so many different pies that they could keep some divisions of their company open, even if they had to stop working on guns for 20 years. But most of them could not. 20 years is actually a really long time. There's no way that you can push pause on a company for 20 years Uh, And that's not even counting the military side of this. The United States military is totally dependent upon private companies for the innovation and production of weapons, specifically uh, small arms. Obviously, this crazy 20-year gun ban would probably not significantly impair uh, McDonnell Douglas or Boeing or Raytheon, especially since one of Raytheon's board members is actually Secretary of Defense right now. I think Raytheon would probably be okay. But the small arms that the military buys... Uh, are invented and produced by small arms companies, these companies would disappear. And the ability of the United States government to buy small arms and have small arms innovation, that would kind of go away. To some extent, you've already seen this happen in Europe. There are large European gun companies that, uh, well, they're, for all intents and purposes, gone. One example of these is, unfortunately, SIG Germany. So SIG USA is doing quite well in the United States. They make firearms, they make ammunition, they make optics, they make all kinds of stuff. They make stuff for the civilian market, they make stuff for the military market. They are diversified and spread out, and they innovate in a whole bunch of different ways. Now, SIG Germany, on the other hand, uh, even though they are known for making extremely high-quality firearms and being master machinists, there are EU regulations that has prevented the uh, military or law enforcement of Europe from purchasing anything from SIG Germany, And since private citizens are not really allowed to buy or own weapons, certainly not easily, their civilian uh, market is tiny. Their civilian market is so incredibly small that they basically cannot exist as a company if they are not able to sell weapons to the military or to law enforcement. There's a bunch of companies in Europe that still exist. Obviously, there's Walther, there's Glock. There's a whole bunch of companies that exist in Europe, and they sell things to various governments, but they they make an awful lot of their profit selling things to American civilians. If they could no longer sell things to American civilians, I don't actually know that their business models are tenable. So we're not just looking at the end of large American gun companies. We're looking at the end of many European gun companies as well, if this, this 20-year ban happened. Uh, and that's a kind of an interesting thing to think about. Like, I have no idea how Glock's business model works. It involves a whole bunch of Lippenzauer Stallions, and I don't, I don't understand that. But basically, they sell pistols and entrenching tools, and most of the people that they actually sell pistols to are American citizens. We don't know the exact breakdown, but we do know that the people who pay full price for Glock pistols are American civilians. The people who buy pistols at a significant bulk discount are militaries and law enforcement. So even though we don't know the exact percentage of revenue that comes from the American civilian market, it's got to be a lot of Glock's profits. So something like this 20-year ban on all production and importation of guns would not only sink a bunch of American companies, but it would sink a whole bunch of international companies. And it would weaken our militaries, uh, not just here, but also abroad. But, and this is one of the interesting points that I want to get to, I think it would actually weaken uh, technological development as a whole. And the reason for that is that if you look throughout history, there are a bunch of technological advances um, and developments that actually come out of the firearm industry, and out of firearm research. They, they tend to be uh, revolving around metallurgy or machining, but there's a whole bunch of tools and techniques that come out of firearm manufacture, even from the very, very beginning of firearm manufacture. So if you go back and you look at, uh, say, the early cannons and matchlocks, they drove advances in alloys and in casting in ways that trickled down to the way that bells were made and all kinds of other metal parts and all other kinds of casting. And if you look at uh, Flintlock uh, development, Flintlock development um, drove a a ton of advances in metal spring technology. Now, clockwork stuff was happening at that time, and clocks were driving that anyway, but the reliability and dependability that a Flintlock required... Uh, really had a significant impact on the need and the competition uh, of spring makers and metallurgists to actually figure out the best way to come up with some of these technologies. There was better rifling, and all of the the machining required uh, to create that better rifling trickled down to other industries as well. And then probably the most famous example is uh, Eli Whitney began building rifles with interchangeable parts. So this is basically the beginning of mass manufacture from a machining perspective. Instead of every rifle being hand built out of parts that are then hand fit so that no part from rifle A can be used in rifle B, he said, no, these are all the same parts. They all need to be made to the same specs and exactly the same dimensions, so that all of the pieces of the rifle should be the same in function, and so they should be the same in dimension so that anybody can buy the pieces that they need to fix their rifles. Possibly this is the beginning of the right-to-repair movement. So Eli Whitney's machining capability that he developed in order to make interchangeable parts for rifles completely changed the way that mass manufacture worked, that machining worked, and that mechanical parts worked. Now, you can always make the argument, of course, that this was going to happen anyway. That's true. And yet there's a reason that a lot of these advances do come out of the firearm industry. And it's something that I think that uh, we tend to shy away from and we shouldn't. The left likes to talk about how weapons are designed to kill. And sometimes I've even heard people talk about, oh, yes, this is an interesting piece of technology. Or yes, this is a a fascinating invention that that changed this and changed that. What a shame that it revolves around something that was only made to kill. And oftentimes we we kind of want to uh, steer away from that classification of weapons. But I don't think we should. Part of the reason that there is so much competition and so much innovation and so much need for constant improvement and development in the weapons field is simply because weapons are designed to kill. In a situation where killing is the only way to preserve life, it matters a lot. And so you need the tools that are going to enable you to preserve life by either Uh, shooting an animal that you can then use to feed your family with, or actually having to use lethal force to stop somebody from taking your own life or some other innocent lives. In those sorts of situations, you need those weapons to be reliable. You need those weapons to be effective. And the ability to bring lethal force to bear in those situations is very widespread. It's not as unique as you would think. And so the need for tools to be readily available to deal lethal force in those situations is very high. And that's why you see so many innovations coming out of the field of weapons development. Metallurgy is driven throughout the centuries by weapons technology because weapons are vital. Weapons are vital if you are a bad guy trying to do bad things, but weapons are equally vital if you're a good guy trying to stop bad guys from doing bad things. That's why there's always a need for better weapons. There's always an arms race that is going on. And even though it's easy to demonize this, it's very important to realize that a weapon that is designed to kill is also very capable of being used to preserve life in that situation. And that's why you have guys like Eli Whitney trying to come up with better ways of making better guns and making guns cheaper. He wants effective weapons, and he wants them in the hands of a larger number of people, and he wants that weapon, once it's in the hands of that person, to be easily repairable so it's functioning a larger percentage of the time. And that's why there is so much thought and effort that is dedicated to weapons technology specifically throughout the ages. It's something that uh, liberals will often poo-poo or try to denigrate in some way, but it's actually really fascinating, and it shows what incredibly high premium people placed upon good, solid weaponry. If you really look throughout the history of civilization, you will find that civilizing influences appreciate good weapons, and they are so incredibly desirous of having powerful and effective and commonly available weapons to preserve that civilization that you see a lot of economic effort and a lot of technological effort being focused in those areas and if you look at today right now in the United States today i would say that the people who make optics for weapons the people that make lights for weapons they're really pushing the envelope in terms of thermal management and ruggedization are there people making lights and optics in other areas? Well, of course there are, but they're not being held to the same rigid uh, requirements. Um, Sony and Canon are making great camera lenses, but those camera lenses are not being held to the same life or death standards that, say, Leopold or Trigicon's optics are. They have a slightly different design requirement, and so they're pushing the envelope in completely different ways, ways that are extremely important. So let's say that you are NASA and you need something that is incredibly rugged. Are you going to go to Canon or are you going to go to Trijicon? Oftentimes you'll find that some of these weapon companies are actually developing technologies that are more useful uh, in different areas than you'd think. Um, Suppressor developers are doing all kinds of really cool things with exotic materials. And I mentioned NASA before. Obviously, there's a bunch of uh, billionaires uh, that are building rockets so that they can shoot themselves into space. So there's a bunch of people who are doing really cool supersonic fluid simulations and messing around with exotic materials for the purpose of rocketry. And yet that stuff doesn't trickle down to the small guys quite as quickly when it's being worked on by very large military contractors or very large uh, internet bookstore people. I did not expect Jeff Bezos to be one of the pioneers of rocketry in my lifetime. But one of the things that happens with the arms industry is it is actually far more competitive a lot of the stuff that's developed by that arms industry trickles down to smaller shops much faster. So there are far more people building suppressors with exotic materials than there are people building interplanetary rockets with exotic materials. And the research being done by these small suppressor developers is far more likely to be floating around uh, and inspiring other developments. 3D printing in the gun industry and small-scale machining, again, the number of small shops that are working on weapon technology is something that is tremendously helpful. It's not just a few giant corporations that have all their secrets locked up in a vault. There are tons of people with small shops and good CNC machines developing their own machining capability, and they're building firearms. They're building things that require extremely tight tolerances. They're building things that require extreme reliability. They're building things that have to put up with all kinds of abuse and terrible environments. And they're doing all this stuff on a very small scale in a very competitive free market. I'm actually kind of surprised at how free the firearm market actually is, because in many ways it is far more regulated than any other market. It pays extra taxes. Like there's a 10% excise tax on every firearm that is made and sold. The market is limited in all kinds of ways. Like, like I mentioned, there's a a ton of guns that you can't even buy in California. One of the largest retail markets in the entire country, a whole bunch of firearm development can't even touch that market. And yet there is a huge amount of competitive free market spirit in this small industry. And I think that it would be incredibly detrimental, not just to the economy, but um, to technological development if you were to shut this thing down. In many ways, the firearm industry for all of the, you know, internet drama and the red anodized stuff or or zombie green stuff, you know, apart from all of that, there is a tremendous amount of free market spirit that exists and really healthy competition that exists in this market that drives things in a way where you don't necessarily see that in the automotive industry, for example, or in the billionaire rocket owner market, for example. There's a tremendous amount of camaraderie and competitive spirit that actually drives people forwards to try new things and experiment with new things. I can only imagine what things would be like if the firearms market were more free, if it were easier for people to prototype stuff, if it were easier for people to test stuff, if it were easier for people to market things uh, to different parts of the country or different parts of the world, and if they paid fewer taxes while they were doing it. I think we'd be much healthier as as an industry, and I think that a healthier weapons industry would actually be incredibly beneficial to all the other sectors of the economy that exist. And so this idea that we're going to cut off sales for 20 years and then somehow spin up an entire sector of the economy that's been dead for that time is preposterous. Now, the other thing, of course, that immediately popped into your head that I didn't mention was there's no way that we would shut this thing down for 20 years and then actually be allowed to spin it back up. But that's that's beside the point. If we just take this argument at face value, shutting down the weapons industry, the private weapons industry, the civilian weapons industry of the United States, uh, what I think have an incredibly negative impact to the entire world, and maybe it would be hard to measure. But in the United States, I think it would be significant. And again, I'm only making the practical argument because... The moral and legal arguments are profound. This is an incredible violation of the Second Amendment. This is an incredible violation of private property. It's a huge violation of the free market. It's damaging all types of economies. It's taking value from all kinds of people that have built companies based on laws that already exist that protect their ability to do so, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea is a bad idea on many different levels, but it was a good opportunity to talk about some of the practical aspects um, of the weapons industry and of weapons development throughout history, which I find fascinating. It's something I want to do a little bit more research on. And if any of you have useful research resources, I would love for you guys to tell me about those. And because this is a podcast, there's not an easy way for you to do that. The best way is to email team at trex-arms.com. That's our customer support team who can help you with anything. Uh, They can help you with anything except any questions that you have about the new sidecars. All that they can tell you is that some changes cannot be made quietly, and that our IWB holsters are temporarily unavailable for purchase while we finish the last major steps in retooling our production line. And that's all I can say also. Now, one thing that I can tell you, which is completely unrelated, is earlier today, I was shooting a replica Winchester rifle, and... Even though this thing is from the 1860s, it is technologically awesome, and I really want one. (laughs) I never completely understood the interest that people had in these older weapons and the cowboy action shooting. I totally get it now. I completely get it. And the only thing that I need to figure out now is if I want a Winchester or a Henry. And I want to start collecting some of the earlier iterations of weapons technology that sparked tremendous developments in either metallurgy or machining or even the way that the military did different things tactically because of the weapons that they had at their disposal. Um, There are developments in history that are major milestones that spark tremendous changes. And yeah, I want to be more familiar with those. So hopefully that's something that I can do a little more research on. That's something that you guys can uh, study and look into because it's really interesting. And hopefully there'll be another podcast for you next week.